Hello and welcome to Mohawk's Meet the Team series, a podcast dedicated to the team behind creating the strategy title, Old World. We'll get to know more about the team and their work on the project. This week, we're going to be speaking to Daniels, aka Solver, who's a designer and programmer for Mohawk. And we'll also be speaking to Dale, who's a designer and QA tester for Mohawk Games. So stay tuned. And joining me again for this week's episode is Daniel. Welcome to the show again. Yeah, thanks for having me yet again. And very glad to have you, this time for a different reason. So we're going to get to know you a little bit. And I'm also joined by Dale from Down Under. Welcome, Dale. G'day, Rob. G'day, Daniel. How are you doing today? Oh, now I need you to just start saying like every Australian like <laughs> saying that we all think of. <laughs> oh, I love it. He'll get there okay. soon enough. Yeah, I'm just going to start throwing them out there and hopefully he'll just re- repeat them back to me. <laughs> That's not a knife. <laughs> there you go. See, on. <laughs> this is already going to be a great show. All right. Well, <laughs> what I've been tasked with is keeping you two on track, which I understand is going to be a difficult task. So what we'll do is I'll start with Daniel first, because we've had him back on the show before, and we haven't had a, a real chance to get to know you, sir. So would you mind telling me a little bit about where you grew up? All right, I can go first, since you're uh, such a convincing person. So I grew up in Riga, the capital of Latvia. Uh, that's where I'm from originally. Uh, so that's a small, obscure country of uh, less than 2 million, or part of the Soviet Union back then, but we don't talk about that. So uh, yeah, that, that's where I was born, and that's where I grew up. Went to school there initially, and uh, well, also graduated school there. The first school I went to, uh, that was a, an art school, which an, an elementary school, which is sort of an art school, but it doesn't really get heavily into the arts aspect until the fifth grade. So that means that after the fourth grade, I had to basically leave it because I have absolutely zero artistic talent. I'm pretty sure I am the worst artist the teachers at that school had ever seen. <laughs> uh, and n- now still, even uh, even as an adult, I draw at the level of maybe a five-year-old. I can manage stick figures, but not much else. Uh, so yeah, after uh, not being good at art, I went to other schools and uh, oh, eventually... Ended up at a university also, got a degree in uh, computer science there, and uh, then l- later I moved countries, but uh, now I'm getting kind of ahead of myself. So if we talk more about my early years, I, I think I was obsessed from the very beginning with information in general and with things that make things work. So like you can push a button and then something happens, or you can pull a lever and something happens. So any kind of that action-reaction or uh, action-consequence thing. So I guess I was uh, destined from the very beginning to become a guy that does something with computers, because that's information, and that's also a lot of this button-pushing and uh, that. So I, I really couldn't have turned out any other way. Well, with that said, were you around computers at that time, or did it take a while to to get to to realizing your love for computers? I realized my love for them quite early, but uh, that it took a while longer to actually get one, because uh, it was just like any time I saw a computer somewhere, which was not a common thing there, but then I was definitely very interested. And not even necessarily a computer, but anything that kind of resembled a computer or a keyboard, or 
one of my childhood memories is that I went on an Italian ship, uh, a military ship that was visiting for some reason. And what I remember most clearly of that is that I went into the uh, control room or whatever it's called on a ship. And there it had a big, good old fashioned control panel with many buttons and lights. And uh, that just completely fascinated me. Uh, they allowed me to press some of the buttons and I was completely beside myself with joy. So even before I had regular access to a computer, I knew that I wanted uh, computers. Uh, sadly, it wasn't, or well, maybe not sadly, because it's fortunate that I at least got to do something else. Uh, but all of those early computers, like you would have the Ataris and the Commodore 64s and whatever, they were not really a thing in the Soviet part of the world. So... Uh, People couldn't afford them anyway, and they just didn't really exist. Same thing with gaming consoles. Even though I'm involved with games and have been playing games, I'm pretty much exclusively PC because gaming consoles, they didn't make their way to that region. Or when they did, then they were really uh, weird. Like you would, in the West, you would know the uh, Nintendo, of course, uh, the, the NES, but in, in there, we had uh, something called the Dandy, which was a Soviet clone of an illegal Chinese clone of the Nintendo. So it was something that sort of looked similar, sort of worked similarly, and sort of could sometimes run the same software, but was really two levels removed from the console that it was trying to fake. So uh, it didn't work, you could say. Yeah, that's, I mean, like, with all due respect, that sounds so foreign to me as an American growing up here and, you know, always having access to that stuff. How long was it before you actually moved out of the area? That was quite a, quite a long time. So uh, I moved to Sweden only uh, some 10 years ago. So I, uh, I spent most of my life in, uh, in Latvia, which was, of course, since, since the 90s has been an independent country. And uh, very rapidly developing country. So I, I started working there. I got uh, my first degree there. Uh, and it's also been really amazing to see the kind of development in all areas that has happened. Because when, uh, you know, when communism fell apart, and let's say around 1990, then uh, all of those countries that were probably like a good 30, 40 years behind the West in every way, if you look at a picture from there in the 90s and you look at a picture from the rest of Europe in the 60s, then they kind of look the same. So infrastructure, transport, general appearances, everything was a few decades behind. And by now it has pretty much caught up. So it's like I got in the next 15 years, I got to see probably 40 years worth of, worth of development of infrastructural change, of social change and the like. So some of it does uh, have its advantages that I, can, that I can joke about it now. Like I was in my teens when I finally had regular access to running hot water. So it does now also seem ridiculous to me uh, in retrospect. But uh, yeah, that's just how life was back then. Yeah, wow. So I, I know that I remember, I mean, having witnessed that from very far away, it, it seemed like mostly the transition of power to a more democratic way of life was mostly peaceful, right? Like you, there weren't, I know that some of the, so the former Soviet Union had some conflict, but was Latvia a part of that? 
It was mostly peaceful except for a brief period. So there were uh, like literally a few days with firefights in the streets and uh, there were people were massively, like probably most of the population of the country, they were outside, they were building barricades because they were anticipating like an, an imminent uh, Soviet military invasion to try and uh, recapture and retake control. So people, they erected huge concrete blocks around the government buildings and they manned those barricades 24-7. And fortunately, for the most part, nothing happened. But yeah, there were a few, there were a few days when there were fights and uh, some people were killed there. But it's still not clear what exactly the central Soviet government was thinking at the time, how, how involved it was or if it was something that the like the local units decided to do. So fortunately, compared to what it could have been, then yeah, you could say that the uh, transition was a peaceful one, even though it uh, it did re- require some uh, some lives to be claimed. Yeah, that's unfortunate. But at least it wasn't way worse, right? It could have been way worse, like you said, if the Soviets decided that they were going to come back and take it by force. Yeah, yeah, it could have been way worse. And we have an example of that in Europe just uh, ten years later. Uh, as how Yugoslavia was breaking up uh, not not so long after that and uh, that was extremely uh, bloody with civil wars and large scale wars for that lasted for for years so it it definitely could have been much worse thanks for sharing that with us daniel that's really cool i mean cool and also just interesting to hear i i, I hadn't really noticed i mean to hear it from your perspective it's much different you know of course we we propagandize that as Americans. So it just seems like a much different experience than that, that of which I would have expected. So let's switch back over to Dale for a second and ask him about his childhood in sunny Australia and see what it was like. Yeah, so I don't know how to follow that up. It's a bit hard. <laughs> but yeah, I grew oh, up the, in... The, the stuff you have to fight off in Australia is at least as dangerous as the Soviet army. <laughs> Yeah, true, like the spiders and the snakes and the sharks and the koalas and, yeah. (laughs) Drop bears, right? Yeah, that's right, drop bears. And the way to avoid drop bears is you rub Vegemite on your forehead. (laughs) Scares them them away. (laughs) Because Vegemite scares everything away. (laughs) Definitely, definitely. I grew up in country Victoria, so I'm currently in Melbourne, which is the capital city of Victoria. We're down at the southeast end of Australia. Oh, yeah, I grew up a couple of hours out of Melbourne in a small town that only had like about a thousand people. We had a farm. We had, well, I used to call them hamburgers because they were beef cows, so they'd go off to make hamburgers. (laughs) Yeah, and I grew up out there, went to school out there, and life was very peaceful for me out there in the country. And then early 80s, I was spending a bit more time in like one of the bigger towns, uh, Sale, and it had a shopping centre and it had a, it was a big electronics chain called Dick Smith's, Dick Smith Electronics. Dick Smith is like one of the first Australian billionaires, so he, he got it all from electronics. And I used to spend a lot of time in the Dick Smith store in Sale playing on this little console that they had called a Dick Smith Wizard. 
Later, I found out it was basically a rebadged Coleco Vision. So if anyone remembers the Coleco Vision from late 70s, early 80s, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and they had cartridge games called Space Invaders and Crazy Cheeky. So Crazy Cheeky was basically Pac-Man. But instead of eating dots, you were laying dog dots as a chook. And that was sort of my first introduction to computers. So I literally grew up as a kid with computers, which is the opposite of yours, Daniels. So, you know, I was exposed very early, got one very early, went through the Commodore 64 phase, and that's where my love of gaming came from. C64 is such a common trait for many people who have uh, learned to love computers. I got my hands on a C64 later, and uh, it's it's such a fun system, really, to, to nerd out on. Exactly. And it was games like Summer Games and Winter Games and California Games I also had the basic cartridge as well. So it was that was my first foray into programming was making basic. And I actually made my own Olympic Games type of thing after playing summer games. Um, so there you go. That was my first computer game that I made. Heard it here first. I feel like I have to translate what you just said back there. So you you played as Pac-Man. It was like a Pac-Man-like game, but you played as a chicken. Is that what you said? Yeah, so it was called Crazy Chicky, and it, you were a chicken, and you laid eggs, and there were foxes instead of ghosts that would walk around eating your eggs, and you would have to eat, like, the power seed to go and then eat the wolves, or the foxes, or whatever they were. So it's sort of like opposite Pac-Man. <laughs> Do you have any idea of how Australian that sounds, that you even make Pac-Man more dangerous and more uh, more of a fight for your life with some crazy animals you could say that or you could just say it's completely upside down like everything over here so dill being in the southeast then you are currently experiencing winter then right like a, a pretty strong winter i'd imagine right yes so this last week we've actually had um and i don't know where the weather guys come up with this but apparently it was a detached antarctic polar vortex i've no idea what that means it just basically means we've had snow storms we've got floods we've had winds so strong that it's like blown down trees all through my town i lost half a tree out the front the trampoline tried to jump over the fence it's been pretty horrible weather for the last week but hey that's june <laughs> it's just normal oh god it's it's so weird to me and it's just it's such a weird shift in thinking to consider june being like a winter month uh, here it's always a very warm month for us it's the transition to warmth and you know we've had a lot of thunderstorms and stuff like that but you know to hear you talking about polar vortexes which i've i've actually heard of they started using those a few years ago here in the united states like you know the the like you know i guess it's almost like a small hurricane in some ways that creates you know strong winds and yeah, no, it's just it's strange to me to hear you say June's a winter month. Y'all are weird back down there. Sorry. <laughs> well, it's actually Queen's birthday weekend this weekend, which is the traditional opening of the ski season up at the snow resorts. And if it wasn't for our current lockdown restrictions, I would actually be up there. So it's a bit of a shame. That is a shame. I'm sorry to hear that. Well, so you start off with, I mean, it sounds like a a very Australian version of some of what we, you know, have come to know as like the basic or like the foundation of video gaming. And where did that lead? I mean, how did you, you say you, you developed your first game, but then how far did that rabbit hole go? Okay, so 
I had the Commodore 64 for quite a few years. I had my, my first Sid Meier game was actually Pirates, and I played it to death. Like, absolutely loved that game, even to the point that I would hack the save game and move Panama over to the Antilles Islands so that I didn't have to sail all the way across the map and then spend like three years trying to come back against the wind. You know, just little things like that. Yeah, Wonder Boy. I, I grew up on Wonder Boy on the Commodore 64, Pirates, um, Archon, Zaxxon, you know, games like that. You know, your typical arcade games. I'd go down to the fish and chip shop and they always had a different arcade game. It'd be like Galago or Space Invaders or um, Choplifter. Although I think in America you guys called it Rescue Chopper or something. Yeah, so it was quite the normal... 80s electronics upbringing and from there it just increased my love of computing like my mum was an accountant so she was one of the first ones in town to get a um, an IBM PC and I used to have a couple of games that I would even play on that and you know in the middle of the night she'd mum or dad would come down and here I am like two o'clock in the morning still playing pirates or archon or something or other and you know i was always getting in trouble for that sort of thing and then at school had the first electronic typewriters and me and my mates at school we actually made on the electronic typewriters this like little maze game like it was crazy the things we could do back then well how did that end up landing you where you kind of are now like did you end up going to school for that so when i hit year nine or when i was i think it was 15 i actually got sent to boarding school in melbourne in the country it's very hard to get you know back then in the in the 80s early 90s it was really tough to get a good solid year 11 and 12 education to get yourself into university um so i got sent to melbourne to a school in melbourne and they had apple Macs or mac twos i think they were back then um and we used to um, I, in year 11 and 12, I actually did programming courses. They just called it IT. And it was like Logo and Pascal, learning those languages. Yeah, and so I did those subjects in year 11 and 12, which then my parents really... De- I, I did a traditional like double mass phys, chem, commerce and IT um, in year 12, which allowed me to get into university. Now, my parents... They were like, if you don't do law or medicine, you're not really doing any jobs. So I applied for law commerce and I got into law commerce at the University of Melbourne. I did six months of it and absolutely hated it. And then just transferred to an arts degree just so I was still at university while I thought about what I wanted to do. And, you know, during that time, you know, a couple of other big games had come out and I got my... That was, what, 93, 94? And, yeah, there was quite a... It was a game that came out that really changed my perspective and my entire career and my direction. Um, a little game called Civilization. Don't know if you guys have heard of it. No. Nope. Might have. Yeah, it sounds pretty <laughs> obscure to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that was my introduction to Civilization. I bought a computer and it actually came on it. It was the free game for the marketing to make you buy their computer. So I got Civilization on it, and that was it. I was hooked from day one. And you know, from there, it 
made me think, okay, I want to do IT. I want to do computers. So I actually transferred to Monash University, which is the other big uni here in Melbourne. And I did my, I started a Bachelor of Computer Science. So did that. I did it in operating systems and management. So I came out the other end with a Bachelor of Computer Science. I knew how to run server rooms and how to set up you know, lands and all the infrastructure stuff that goes at the back of enterprises um, and landed my first job doing um, typesetting at a printing firm, electronic typesetting. So an electronic typesetter is a glorified word processor. <laughs> so they sit there with, with files that come in from clients on Microsoft Word and they relay it out so that it fits nicely on the the print, the big commercial printers, and you hit print, and it goes off, and it prints a thousand copies of this book for you. Um, so that was my first job. Did that for a few years, and then I actually I took a completely different direction. This was coming up at the end of '97, and I applied for. So Australia and Canada had this program called a cultural swap. And basically, if you were under 25, you could apply for this program through the Department of Foreign Affairs. And if someone on the other side of the program applied with similar skills, you would do a cultural swap for 12 months. So I would go to Canada and the person in Canada would come to Australia. Um, I just happened to be lucky that someone with a similar skill set to me actually applied. So I got accepted on the program. So in 1998, I spent the whole year over in Canada. Absolutely loved it. And I can I can still talk a bit like a Canadian, you know, and I'm not talking about a boot that, eh? <laughs> <laughs> so, so when I came back, I had a, well, while I was over there, I got a job as desktop support with Royal Bank of Canada. Did that for a couple of months. And then this um, Y2K project came up with their foreign exchange wing. So I applied for that and I actually got accepted as a project manager for that. Um, so I got to travel all through the western seaboard of the US, all of Canada, up to Anchorage, um, to anywhere on the west side of North America where there was a Royal Bank offices. You know, not the actual banks themselves, but the actual offices. Um, I couldn't go to the east side of Canada because I didn't speak French. And unfortunately, if you don't speak French and you're a foreigner in Canada, they don't let you work in the French-speaking parts, which is a bit crazy, I think. But yeah, while I was over there, grew to love IT, came back to Australia. And from there, I've basically been purely IT, working on operating systems, support. I've done phone support. I've done system administration. I've done setting up, you know, massive, you know, petabyte SANS and um, archiving systems for hospitals. I've done um, supporting like 30, 40 schools networks. I've, yeah, quite varied. And then probably 10 years ago, I went specifically into programming. Uh, made my shift into just programming. Um, I should probably go back to about early two th to, to the 2000s, 99, 2000. Um, I was actually playing Call to Power back then, and I started doing a couple of mods. I found a site called Apolitan, um, and they had some Never mods. Never heard of that one. Yes, you have. Don't deny it. 
I've told you just I hey this is this is where I step in. I remember you, no forum <laughs> talk here. <laughs> oh, we're allowed, we're allowed to talk about that one. That okay, one's all right. All right that's probably right. the, <laughs> that's probably actually the start of the history between um, Daniel and I. Uh, so we we're both playing a game called Call to Power. I made some mods for it, and he was interested in playing those mods, um, and he had some questions and. Um, I'll let him talk about that part of his history. But basically, since then, we've known each other. We've come through civilization lines. Yeah, I don't know how far down that line you want to go. Wow. You no, know, we're going to come back to this because it's it's insane to me to think that you guys have known each other, even though you lived in very different parts of the world for that long. So that's the power of the internet. It's amazing. But Daniel, why don't you kind of bring us up to speed where you were all this time? Yeah, so I was, how should I say, uh, all the game stuff was kind of in parallel with uh, what I was doing uh, doing at the time. Uh, I, I had a computer, uh, so I was interested in programming from the start, but, uh, where, yeah, because I figured out that programming is how you make computers do more. I was experimenting with computers and tweaking configurations and doing all kinds of creative stuff that I could imagine, but then it didn't take long to realize that, okay, programming is how you really make computers uh, do stuff. So I uh, started teaching myself programming as soon as I could. Also started with BASIC, uh, just as Dale did. That was, uh, for me, that was QBASIC, the DOS version. Uh, and in my case, it was just because I didn't have any resources for anything else, but I don't remember how it came into my possession, but I got my hands on a uh, Soviet magazine that had some kind of introduction to BASIC, and it was not quite the right dialect of BASIC, so I was trying to follow that along and do that stuff on the computer, and it was almost working, but not really, so I had to change some stuff, and it was very frustrating, but also very, very educational. And then, well, I kept learn learning more about programming, doing more computers, even as I was doing other stuff, even before university. I spent some time working as a translator, but I was still playing games and uh, programming on the side. And uh, I, I guess one thing I should uh, make explicitly clear here is that, obviously, I uh, did not speak any English as a child, as a small child. And because I'm not from an English-speaking country. But that's where my parents come in with probably one of the most influential uh, decisions they made. I don't think anyone could have anticipated how, how much of an influence it would have. So they made a very good guess. They guessed that uh, when I was still a child. So they guessed that, you know, maybe all of this uh, thing with the Soviets or Russia sort of controlling much of Europe is going to end. And then maybe if that happens, then maybe everyone, even in our part of the world, will be able to benefit from English greatly. So that was a very, very good guess by them. And uh, they really pulled out all the stops in uh, getting me some kind of tools and some kind of ability to learn English. They uh, they found some hard, hard to find books for me. They uh, even got me a tutor that could uh, offer me private lessons in English. So in the end, I was asked. I started speaking some English at a much earlier age than uh, most most kids in my generation would have. And 
but it's it's still the case that most Latvians of my age they don't really speak English. They probably understand some. They can uh, get around with some basics, but uh, it's not very common for somebody my age to be fluent in English. And for for me, of course, it was something that uh, eventually changed everything because with English I had much more access to information. I could eventually start uh, learning more about computers, which I have been so interested in. Then I could start learning more about computers in English, even though uh, here I have to give credit to uh, Russian translators of everything. There's also quite a lot of information available in Russian, and I was reading some uh, uh, Soviet-published uh, books on computer architecture. I was also, for a time, reading Russian translations of some English computer science books. So there definitely is stuff you can learn if you speak Russian, but it still doesn't uh, doesn't compare to, to what you get in English. Here also, as a side note, that was extremely frustrating and difficult for me to learn English. I have those memories. It's uh, At the time, I knew my native Latvian language and I knew Russian and English is so very different from both that I struggled and uh, I really didn't believe I would ever be able to understand a whole paragraph of English. Fortunately, I am able to do that. Uh, and so as I'm saying, that knowledge of English turned out to be very, very helpful uh, in all my life. Because if you don't speak proper English, then you end up stuck in Australia. Some people, there's not really <laughs> much choice. Uh, so at some point, I started playing also uh, Civilization, Civilization 1, which was probably the first game that I uh, really, really liked. I had tried other games also before, you know, all the typical Space Invaders or arcade-style games or whatever earlier games. But, Did you play uh, the Russian crazy Ivan Pac-Man? <laughs> yes, yeah, so yeah that, that as well. <laughs> okay, so what was it? Was it like a Russian bear in this case? I don't know. I, I, what would be the Russian equivalent of, of chickens getting run down by foxes? N no, it's pretty much Pac-Man, but it has some much crazier musics and uh, yeah, slightly crazier animations, but uh, no, no chickens. <laughs> nobody, nobody is as crazy as Australia, believe me. Uh, AGB yeah. agents chasing a rebel laying out pamphlets. There you go. No, you go. We, don't, we, don't, we don't think games about that because uh, we got that in real life. You know, you you, you you do games for stuff you can't get in real life. Yeah, you know, I want to interrupt real quick because I'm curious to know, you, you mentioned that there's a distinctness between Latvian and Russian. Is that, I mean, are they very different languages? I imagine that they're they're similar enough, right? No, no, they're, they're not related languages. They're not of the same uh, group. Uh, they're not of the same language family. So they have some common grammar traits. So much of the stuff that I know frustrates Russian learners, it also exists in Latvian, except Latvian takes it to 11. Uh, but these are not similar languages. You cannot understand one if you know the other. So they're not, they're, they're not related. But everybody, everybody who was born in Soviet Latvia would... Uh, speak Russian because that's just the way things were. You couldn't avoid speaking Russian. So I um, I could speak both from well my toddler years. Wow. That's, uh, is it based off the Latin alphabet? No, well, Latvian has a Latin-based alphabet, yeah, some extra letters, but it's Latin alphabet. But then also, you know, C Cyrillic, so people, uh, I know people will often say that, oh, wow, Cyrillic, it looks so fancy or mysterious or whatever. 
or they will think that learning Russian is hard because it has Cyrillic. And that's just not true. You know, it's the least of your problems if you're trying to learn Russian. It's, it's just an alphabet. Uh, same as Latin, it's same principles. Okay, the letters look different, even though not all of them. I can promise you that you can learn to read Cyrillic in a couple of afternoons if you just sit down and do it. And uh, yeah, that's that doesn't help you get anywhere because all of your problems are only beginning at that point. So uh, yeah, all, the, all those claims that r- Russian is hard because it's Cyrillic. No, that's that's not so, that's not why it's hard at all. Gotcha. All right, so let's go. Hard, of course, being relative. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And. Let's come back to Civilization. So that was your first game that really kind of caught you. Yeah, I think so. Because like all of those earlier games, I found them a bit too repetitive and a bit too simple. I would play through it a bit, but they would not really grab me. Because, well, mainly it's the repetition, I think. But then Civilization, it really, really grabbed me. And I saw that games, they can be very complex, that uh, they can be more like board games, which is, I guess, what strategy games basically are. They are computer versions of board games. So starting with Civilization, I got to be much more interested in that. And then I've I've liked other games since that were also uh, strategy or RTS games. So I played Civilization... Uh, yeah, still no, no internet back then, uh, so I played Civilization, did what I could to learn about it, which sort of worked because back then days, uh, back in those days, games had some included help and some included manuals and so on. So I learned about that, but then w- what that meant that when I got to use uh, internet regularly, then I was uh, looking up some uh, sites for Civilization. And that's some years later. So by that point, of course, I had tried uh, Civ 2 and Alpha Centauri and had just started on Call to Power when I also found this forum I'm not allowed to talk about, uh, and um, which Dale mentioned. So yeah, that was uh, in uh, in the year 2000. That was my, my uh, how should I say, the start of my career in the Civ community because it's been almost as a career. And since uh, since the year 2000, I've been very much a a member of that community so how did you guys meet so dale is right when he says it was over call to power which by the way is a very very underrated game it uh, does some great things with the civilization formula that other games still haven't done so call to power is really great even if little known and uh, yeah dale was modding and i think it was his diplom mod probably his diplomacy mod that uh, i was having difficulty installing or getting to work something with scripts so i was messaging dale if he could help me figure out and i i definitely remember that i was not exceedingly polite i was very blunt and very much to the point uh, and Dale, I guess he was in a very good mood then because he's not always, but he was in a good mood. So, so he very kindly helped me do that. And uh, then since Call to Power was not played by so many people, it uh, kind of meant that we were hanging around in the same area of the forums. And then later when Call to Power 2 came out and, and so on. So we've kind of been... Uh, so, somewhere nearby uh, since since that time not not always working together but yeah we've we've been in touch and we've been playing the same games 
until the really fun stuff uh, came with Sephora, which I guess uh, Dale wants to talk about. I know you do. <laughs> I think we both want to, don't we? Yeah, so, yeah but uh, yeah, you, you know, Rob needs to sleep at some point. And if we, so Rob, uh, warning, this is one of the off the rails tracks. So if we start talking about Sephora, this is five hours of nonstop verbal. Yeah, again, words I should not be saying on air. <laughs> All right, Dale. You're up then. <laughs> All right. All right. So Civilization 4, where do we start? So I'd been doing some mods with Call to Power and Call to Power 2. I'd been quite vocal about Civilization 3 and about some of the things I felt were good and bad about Civ 3. Um, I'll just, be quite just honest. To it wasn't just to interject here. Quite vocal is an understatement. <laughs> You're quite right when you say that I did have quite a temper back then. Yeah, got into quite a few arguments about Civ three. So I then got an email from Soren. Uh, he'd just taken up the reins for, or not just taken up the reins, but he was leading up the design for Civilization Four. And I got an email from him basically saying, you know, if you think Civ Three's got lots of problems, why don't you join me and help me fit, make Civ Four better? And I was like, hell yes, I'll do that. So I joined this team called Frankenstein. So Frankenstein was like a community of um, civilization players or people who had an interest in Civ. Uh, we were community players, we were fans, we were gamers. We were there to basically play the prototypes as Firaxis was making them and then give feedback to Soren and the design team so that they could then go through their iterations. One thing about Soren that always comes out about his design process is that he's an iterative designer. So what that means is he'll just put something out there and then you just play it and you make changes on the fly continuously and you just go over and over, play, change, play, change, until eventually what you get is a very refined set of rules, um, a very refined design that actually works all together with the rest of the game. And that's always been his design philosophy. So that's where this Frankenstein group came about because we were from the community and the fans of the game of civilization and that type of game because they also came from Call to Power and we were there to do the playing and the feedback whilst Firaxis did the iteration of the game and that went on for oh, a couple of years I believe and Daniel you were part of that process as well from memory there were a couple of other yeah. names that we remember yeah, um, sure. and, and I think we should credit Soren here also because this kind of this level of fan involvement that went into making Civ 4, it was really unusual uh, at the time, and it still kind of is unusual. So, you know, Soren is uh, famous for his work with the community, and uh, this Frankenstein is perhaps the best example of that, that he really he started this group for Civ 4. He invited uh, the most vocal people or the most uh, active people from the community who really, really had put hundreds and thousands of hours into Civ. And he really listened to them and worked closely with them. So this is, I think this is really a milestone in how uh, this kind of game has been developed. 
Yes, and it should also be said that Soren himself came from the community. He was part of the Civ fan community as well, and it was through his vocalisation and his activity within the community that got Firaxis uh, interested in him. And so he was able to get an internship early on in Civ 3 and the story of, well, you can go and listen to Soren's podcast to hear his story. But like him, we also came from the community. So it's a very, very powerful path to take because not only do you have uh, the skills to help uh, develop a game, you also have that passion. And that's something that, you know, sometimes you get a game and you just go, obviously they didn't really feel the game, you know, the people that made it. Whereas Civ's always been different. It's always been, especially after Civ 3, it's always been people who were extremely passionate about the game. And Siren's always been like that. He's always been 200% invested into any game he's been a part of. Um, and it tells in the way they play and the way he designs. So with Civ 4, I teamed up with a couple of others from Frankenstein and we came up with a design for a scenario. Because we're through Frankenstein, we're also encouraged to come up with new ideas. And coming up near the end of the development process, the whole Frankenstein group was asked, okay, who's got some ideas for some scenarios that we can package with Civ 4 Vanilla? So myself and two of the other guys, we got together and the three of us loved World War II. So we came up with the idea for Desert War. And that was one of the first proper mods for Civ 4. So a little known fact is that the scenarios that ended up shipping with Civ 4 Vanilla, Warlords and Beyond the Sword they all started as mods within Frank, the Frankenstein group. Um, and basically the way it worked is you um, made the mod, uploaded it, Siren and a couple of others would play it, and if they were happy with it, then they would okay for it to become part of the actual shipped game. And Just to clarify for uh, anyone who wasn't there, that from the beginning of those prototype builds, you had a new build uh, every week or whatever. And then with every build, you also had the up-to-date tools and source code. So people could mod or people could change the source code straight as they were uh, as they were playing and as they were going through this Frankenstein process. So just a clarification on that. Exactly. And some of the biggest mods that came out in the community actually had their beginnings in this Frankenstein group, like Fall from Heaven, Rise and Fall, Road to War, Desert War, the Blue Marble mod, they all had they all had their roots from people within this Frankenstein group who were allowed to play with the tools and help develop the tools that led to modding uh, right from very early on in the development piece. Well, yeah, that's, I mean... I always knew about the inclusion that Soren had for his his audience, for his his you know most dedicated and devoted fan base. But to hear that both you guys came from that is pretty exciting and pretty cool. So, like, so of course, I, I imagine at some level you guys are close enough with Soren, or that you guys have developed such a great you know working relationship with Soren that you stick with him through Civilization Four. And then you know I know that Soren goes on to. Zynga and do some other things. So what were you guys doing between the time where you guys worked with them on Civilization 4 and then now coming back together with Old World? I'll let you go first, Daniels. Yeah, all right. 
<laughs> so after after Soren left for Firaxis, there were still the Civ Four expansions uh, to be done. Soren left kind of early in that process. And then beyond the sword, it was led by uh, Alex Mansaris, who of course is also with us at Mohawk. And uh, that was kind of my first uh, game design experience. Also, so for Beyond the Sword, I was pestering Alex about uh, some of the things I didn't like in Civ 4, and mainly it was AR combat. And eventually I talked him into basically letting me redo this. So I uh, figured out... Talked him into or badgered? <laughs> yeah, I, I might have been a little bit insistent, you know, but, but he agreed that that's all that matters, right? <laughs> uh, so I came up with, uh, with the rule changes that I wanted to see in AR combat, and I also implemented them in, in code, and uh, then those shipped as part of uh, Beyond the Sword. And then Beyond the Sword also had a simple, a simple event system, of course, nothing like Old World, but it's the only modern Civ game to have had some random events which I really enjoyed as a feature. And uh, then I also made a bunch of those random events that shipped with Beyond the Sword. I did some other, after release, I did some patching of bugs and of AI that ended up being rolled in an official patch. I think it was patch 319 or whatever for Beyond the Sword had a lot of my code in there. So I wasn't really part of the development team for Beyond the Sword, but as this external person, I got to do uh, still some work that ended up being part of the official game. And yeah, that's kind of my first design stuff. And then I stayed uh, with Frankenstein Group, which continued to exist for future Civ games. I remained there up until uh, up until joining Mohawk. So I've been for there for Civ 5 and uh, Civ 6. And the expansions, for the most part. So I like Civ Six quite a lot. I didn't like Civ Five that much, but uh, and I know many Civ Four veterans were disappointed by Civ Five. But at least I had a, a front view seat to the development of Civ Five. So I may be a little bit inclined to go easier on it because I'm I'm aware of some of the difficulties the dev team was dealing with at the time. Uh, so, since, since you were asking about uh, relationship with Soren, that's right. I didn't uh, work on any of Soren's game directly at the time, but I really, really like him as a game designer. So I was uh, following what he was doing. Checked out Spore. Checked out some of his other other work. Then for Offworld, also I I, I played some of the Offworld uh, beta version, and uh, Soren invited me to play it because he's yeah. He also wanted some feedback. I didn't play too much of it because so sometime before Offworld released, I uh, began dealing with some personal stuff that kind of made me not uh, not want to play professionally. So for a couple of years there, I didn't really play strategy games as much, or yeah, I played them very little. But still, I was in contact with Soren now and then all throughout this until. Uh, until this is what happened with Old World. So also Soren was uh, happy enough with uh, my feedback on the game and my modding attempts uh, for the game that uh, after after Mohawk was forced by COVID to go uh, fully remote, that uh, Soren was eventually uh, happy to also have me join the team uh, formally. And uh, well, that's something I'm very 
grateful for. And uh, I, I have to admit here that it did take me, uh, after that, it did take me a few weeks to stop being uh, starstruck that, uh, wow, I'm actually getting to work with Sorn in an official capacity. It was unbearable for about a month. <laughs> yeah. Was he just such a fanboy that he just couldn't stop talking about it? I was like, oh my god, oh my god, <laughs> well, not exactly like that. Yeah, You're, I'm just glad I was on on the team first, so you didn't see me do that for the first month. <laughs> I, I should ask if somebody has the recordings. Yeah, there you go. Where's the proof? Well, Dale, I can kind of, I mean, so I remember because I was actually part of an early beta testing group for Old World and you were there as I got there. So, and then all of a sudden, you know, based on, you know, cause I, I was part of the, like the early part of Discord too. And one day I see your name in gold and it looked like <laughs> they'd recruited you. So how did that all happen? So I'll, I'll actually go back to Civ 4. Um, because for Beyond the Sword, I was actually, I was actually contracted for a couple of dollars. It was just a small amount, uh, to actually create the road to war scenario for Beyond the Sword. Um, and that was my first proper official taste of game development. So I created Road to War and then after Beyond the Sword shipped, I then supported it further and expanded it. Um, I also got to help support uh, Civ 4 Colonization, which came after Civ 4 Beyond the Sword. Uh, so I was actually part of a community patch so me and a couple of other guys, we developed a patch for Civ 4 colonization, which Firaxis eventually took up and made the official patch, um, which was quite surprising, to be honest. Um, but then also, too, we developed a further addition to that to make it more like the original colonization. So, you know, it, it, there was like the Civ 4 colonization and then there was the Civ 4 original colonization, which is the one I was working on. Um, and that's actually become the basis for a number of other big mods that have come out of Civ 4 Coal. Um, at the end of all that, I was a bit burnt out by strategy games. And, um, you know, as was previous, previously mentioned, you know, Civ 5 was a bit disappointing how it was going for a number of the hardcore Civ fans um, like myself. So I actually dropped out of the Frankenstein group just before Civ 5 was released. Um, so I haven't been a part of that group since then. But I went off and I just played other games. I went on to consoles and played, you know, shooters. I, yeah, it, it, there was even a period of time I decided to settle down, have a family, have some kids. You know, so there were nights where I didn't even touch computers except for yeah. work stuff. And, that, and that's only because you didn't have a civic game you liked at the time, because otherwise the hell you would have done that. Uh, exactly. Yeah, true. Very true. <laughs> I would have lived on the computer if there was a Civ game that I enjoyed. But then I think it was well, about 2000. 16, 17, I can't remember when, um, but it's quite a few years ago now that I got my hands on Factorio, and that was a game that I really, really loved, and like I've put thousands and thousands of hours into Factorio, and I'd also, through this whole time, I'd been following Soren's career, so I was keeping tabs of 
designer notes, his blog and podcast. I'd, you know, played the games that he'd gone on and developed, like Spore and Dragon Age and um, some of his Zynga work as well. I played Offworld. I'm not so much a fan of space and sci-fi, so things like Stellaris and Alpha Centauri and Offworld, you know, while I enjoy it, it's not it's not where my heart is. My, my my heart is definitely in history. So, you know, early classical, ancient here, history, uh, age of discovery period, World War Two. They're the three big key areas of history that I am quite passionate about. I mean, you, it's, know, it's you, you have such a talent for being wrong, you know, not liking sci-fi. It's... <laughs> well, I look to the future and I think, can't we create our own? You know, why do I have to play someone else's? Because it's better. If you if if you want to look at our f- future, then you should be playing the Fallout games. <laughs> <laughs> that's Fair a call. That's a great Fair point. Call. Great point. <laughs> <laughs> if it helps, I was playing that. Um, oh, I can't remember the name of it now. There was a game that came out a few years ago, and it was based on climate change, and it was like the world, you know, going through climate change. And I honestly cannot remember the Fr- name Frostpunk? of it now. Frostpunk? No, it it was a strategy game and a strategy card game. Anyway, so yeah, that is sort of our world. But it was a few years ago and I saw the initial announcement for 10 Crowns that was run by Rock Paper Shotgun and I thought, oh my God, this sounds amazing. I have to be part of it. So I badgered Siren and Siren said, okay, here's a key. Come on and help me you know play it and tell me what you think and that's how i actually got into the early beta testing and i did i was part of that for a few years whilst also playing a lot of factorio and then at the start of last year the modding components of um well it was old world by then uh it was starting to come together and i could see the direction of where it was going but it was obvious, you know, uh, I, I could help by um, coming up with some, you know, mock-ups and stuff like that for the modding uh, side of it. So what I did was I actually wrote a document and I made uh, all these mock-ups of screens and that. And it's actually quite uh, based a lot on the Factorio modding. So with Factorio, you can have like a number of mods all work together or, um, you know, DLL mods, it's amazing their modding scene anyway. So I basically centered this whole document around that. And at the same time, I was quite uh, active on the public Discord for Old World as well. And so I get a message from Layla and Siren, and they said, hey, you know, you really appreciate what you're doing. Would you like to come on officially? You know, help with QA and the community and, you know, be able to, you know, talk about other parts of the game as well. And I was like, yes, definitely. And that was when my name turned gold on Discord. <laughs> I like it. That was a good way to bring it all around. Awesome stuff. Well, yeah, and it's pretty cool to see like you've become part of the, like a large part of the community all of a sudden. And I mean, not even all of a sudden, before even, I know you were talking on Discord a lot, but it's just cool to see you in a more official role. So, wow, so much that I I don't even know where to start. Well, you know, we're going to shift away from the game stuff for just a minute because as part of this podcast... That's a big no. <laughs> well, we have to. 
you know, the idea is that as part of this podcast series, we do want to get to know who you are outside of old world and outside of video games. And I'll start with you, Daniel, just to, to kind of hear maybe what what are something what are the things you end up doing outside of gaming that you enjoy as you know as a as a getaway. Yeah, those things may surprisingly exist, even though I'm a so I'm a typical nerd. Uh, most of the stuff I enjoy is just nerd stuff. I'm I'm not much for going out or being somewhere, uh, but I I read pretty much everything. I uh, I love reading books. I especially love uh, sci-fi. I'm, I'm a big sci-fi reader. Uh, and uh, then my other big interest in life, aside from I wouldn't say games, but computers in general. Uh, so my other big interest has always been in uh, languages, or at least since my early teens. Uh, so I, I speak a bunch of languages. Uh, I have worked with languages. I've worked uh, as a translator, so in text. I've worked as an interpreter, so the oral part of that. And I'm definitely sure that if computers were not around for some reason or something like that, I would have ended up uh, doing something with languages. I would have been uh, just a career translator or um, something along those lines. Yeah, the, those are mostly the things I uh, I like to do. I, uh, I like sitting down with a book uh, somewhere in uh, silence or uh, something at least resembling silence. Uh, I like reading uh, random facts or random anything i uh, i can sometimes just go in on wikipedia if i have the time pick uh, pick some obscure subject i know nothing about and spend the next two hours reading about that uh so um yeah i'm into that kind of um, nerdy stuff well, that's really cool i i really can admire the desire to learn more you know it's especially for, for me it feels like i never have enough time to actively look for things to like teach myself so it's cool that you do that it's really cool what about yourself dale i mean are you you know wrestling alligators and uh wrangling (laughs) wrangling venomous spiders and (laughs) he's doing that right now (laughs) yeah get away get away (laughs) um actually it's funny you mentioned that because i grew up in the country so I have this um, real appreciation for nature and, you know, being out in the, the uh, rural areas, you know, going going bush, as we say over here in Australia. Um, so I do a lot of camping. Um, I go on hikes, you know. Yes, I like camping, hikes on the beach and <laughs> long drinks. <laughs> but what is your zodiac sign? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like to weigh things up, so that should help you. Um, so yeah, I do a lot of camping. You know, I hike along. You know, up in the Alps area in summer, of course, not winter. That's silly. Um, although summer's a bit silly too with our bushfires. Uh, but yeah, I enjoy being out. I like taking the kids away with me as well. And, you know, we've got a couple of dogs as well and we always take them camping. Um, I just love, you know, being able to, you know, be self-sufficient. So I never go places where there's caravan parks or electricity or stuff like that. It's all self-sufficient stuff, solar panels, batteries, tents, that sort of thing. And I'll do, you know, I, I enjoy cooking on a campfire and, you know, just making, you know, good good food in, um, you know, almost like, well, I suppose it's Australia, so it would have to be survival um, <laughs> survival methods, wouldn't it? Um, 
and that's just what I really enjoy, and my kids do as well. And it's really good that we still, you know, we're still able to get out and do that. See, my, my idea of uh, cooking food in a self-sufficient manner is when you order delivery with money that you have earned. <laughs> Uber Eats. Uber Eats is a bit different here. It comes in kangaroo pouches. Oh, nice. Yeah. Those, those Uber Eats drivers, those kangaroos. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Just careful when you open the Cokes because they get shaken up a bit with all the hopping. <laughs> nice. Well, it sounds like both you guys have a pretty good balance of, you know, keeping, I mean, we, I, I am too. I'm a, I'm a nerd at heart, right? I love video games. I love strategy games, but we have to balance things as, you know, all things should be. And yeah, it sounds like you both have a pretty good balance. So that's great to hear. Well, sadly, God, because I love the dynamic here, we have to wrap things up. But I'm curious to know if someone wanted to find you, Daniels, online, is there anywhere they could find you, like Twitter or Discord or anything like that? Would you mind sharing those? So I'm not the first person uh, on Mohawk to say that I don't do social media. I know that. But uh, I am on uh, on our uh, Old World Discords as Solver and uh, I'm definitely on any Civ forum in existence over the last 20 years also. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't do social media outside of that. Gotcha. Yeah. Nope. You are definitely not the first to say that. So Dale, though, Dale feels like he might be a slightly more social person. Can we find you on social media? Slightly. Yes, you can find me on um, some social media. Like I don't do Instagram or or Twitter or that, but I, I am on Facebook, so you can find me in the Old World Facebook group, um, which is specifically just for the game. Um, I'm also on the public Discord, of course. Uh, you can find me mostly hanging around the modding channel there, helping people out, um, but otherwise feel free to ping me on Discord at any time. Gentlemen, it's been a lot of fun, a huge pleasure. I would keep you on for another hour if I could just to hear you guys go at it for a little bit more. <laughs> your, di your dynamic is great. I really appreciate it. But hey, thank you, Dale, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for the time that you spent uh, interviewing us. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure, really. And Daniels, again, it's a, a huge pleasure to have you back on the show and this time to actually get to know you better. Thank you, Rob. This was a lot of fun. And thanks for getting up at 6 a.m. to do this recording, as I know you had to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thanks for getting up so early. I know it is for you. Yeah, no worries. It's been my pleasure. And really, I, I would I would do it all again if I knew that this is what I was going to get out of it. So it's, <laughs> you, you guys both woke me up real, really proper. So great stuff. <laughs> Thank you.